Amen. If you have uh, if you've paid attention to the news over the last week, uh, you are aware of what's going on in Israel, and you may very well have, if you've looked closely, seen some of the most horrific uh, images and heard some of the most horrific stories that you could even imagine. That's war. Uh, but in, in a lot of ways, it's even beyond traditional warfare with the, the uh, tactics of some of Israel's enemies. I, throughout the week, I've continued to hear story of Christian missionaries and servants who are literally in the Gaza Strip. Some have not been heard from. One whose wife actually had not heard from him and eventually uh, came to know his demise when she saw his picture uh, on the streets, uh, bloodied and deceased. I can't imagine uh, what that pain and suffering is. And yet this week, uh, Tuesday night, I received a phone call from Victoria about one of our church members who had a sudden stroke. Friday, I sat in a uh, trailer out at the Deer Lease with a man who has hunted with us for years, lives right here in North Richardson Hills, younger than me, whose wife is the picture of health, uh, actually goes to the gym twice a day and far healthier than, than me or most of us, uh, was diagnosed with stage four cancer this summer. And um, they were afraid. A surprising diagnosis, shocking diagnosis, and with a horrible outlook. And many of you know our story uh, with Katie. Susan was pregnant, had a wonderful pregnancy, looked forward to the birth of our firstborn daughter, only to uh, find out the day that she was born, regardless of all the sonograms and tests that were done, uh, we were shocked and surprised to find that uh, she had a lot of birth defects and the doctors came back in the uh, delivery room and told us that uh, she might not, in fact, probably would not live through the day as they were preparing to give care flight her to Dallas from Abilene. Now, in my story, interestingly, and we talked about this when I looked at First Peter chapter 1, the week before Katie was born, she was born on a Saturday, the Sunday before Katie was born, I had preached from First Peter chapter 1, where God tells us that we will face trials and suffering. Today, we're in First Peter chapter four. And the first phrase of this text says, dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes. And you think of those words, uh, just as we launch the message, Peter is communicating to us that you and I throughout life will face suffering. He's writing to the Christian church. You're gonna go through suffering. I'll tell you how someone can read the New Testament and come away with some type of perverted health and wealth gospel that says, if you just have enough faith, you'll never suffer. I, can't, I don't get it. That's not the words of Christ, and that's not the tone of the New Testament. Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you. That reminds us that God does have a purpose in our suffering, it, 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 and it Though we're called not to be surprised, and oftentimes we are surprised or shocked to some level, God is never surprised. 
He's the God of the universe. It did not catch him off guard when Katie was born that she had uh, some, some birth deformities. It did not catch him off guard when a friend receives the diagnosis of cancer. That did not catch God off guard. And though we're surprised, Peter tells us, look, just don't be shocked by it. It's gonna come. Probably one of the, uh, the most helpful things that I was told early on in ministry was uh, the Christian life is a life that's gonna be lived from faith unto faith. We're gonna go from one circumstance in our life that requires our faith out of that into another circumstance that requires faith. And so we simply are gonna have to learn to trust God in whatever those circumstances are. Um, so we look at 1 Peter chapter 4 as we just continue to walk through Peter's letter to the, to the early church. Read with me the text. We've gotten a little, uh, some of it out already. He says, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal comes among you to test you as if th something unusual were happening to you. Instead, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you may also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. If you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of God and of God, uh, the spirit of glory and of God rest on you. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household. If it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. I, uh, in fact, when I put the outline out and what, what we'll have on screen is uh, not the full outline. I've uh, added to it as I uh, continue to pray over this text. But we're going to begin right there in the first few verses where Peter just commands us, don't be surprised when suffering comes. We live in a broken, fallen world. And because of man's sin, death entered into this world. And we're going to face trials. We're going to face difficulty. Sometimes those trials come because of our own sin. Now, sometimes those trials come because of other sin. And as I've said in the past, sometimes trials just come because we live in a broken world. We're gonna go through tough times. And so Peter encourages us by simply saying, reminding us that Christians are not exempt from suffering. You know the easiest way to illustrate that? Where's Peter today? Physically. He died. If faith saved you from suffering or faith could rescue you from disease or death physically, there would be a lot of 2,000-year-old Christians walking around on the earth, and I don't see any of them, right? The truth is, we as humans have a, a, a disease that is going to take every single one of our lives in this physical world. 100% chance that you and I, one of these days, are gonna take our last breath on this earth, unless, now keep looking east with what's going on in Israel right now, unless Jesus returns first, okay? But 
except for those that are still alive, when Christ returns, every single one of us will take our last breath on this earth and face the grave. You know what your loved ones are going to do when that, when, when that happens? It doesn't matter if you're 95 years old when that happens. Your loved ones are going to hurt. They're going to grieve. They're going to suffer. Some of you, have, like Susan and I, have lost a child. It's unimaginable, the grief and suffering that comes with that. Some of you face horrible financial struggles and difficulties. We all are going to struggle. We're all going to suffer. And so Peter tells us Christians are not exempt from suffering. He uses the word here, fiery ordeal, which, which has the idea of fire or burning. It's, a, it's the same word that he used back in, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, where he, he talks about the testing and trying. Our faith is tested and tried like silver or gold that is purified by putting, being put to the fire. Uh, Peter's probably thinking back to the Old Testament as he writes his letter. And in fact, you, you know he is in some places because he directly quotes from Proverbs here in a moment. But here you find Proverbs 17, 3, the crucible for silver and the smelter for gold, and the Lord is the tester of hearts. Peter understands that the Lord allows us to go through times of trials and suffering for the purification of our faith. It, it both uh, strengthens us as Christians and it, it purifies us. It cleanses our soul. We, I used the illustration when we preached on 1 Peter chapter 1 of uh, Jeff Davidson and, and his knife making. And some of you have watched those knife makers on, on the History Channel. Uh, you know, the, the, the metal is hardened and it's purified by being put to the fire. And the Lord will, will harden and, and make us more useful for his kingdom. I've talked about the fact I have some of, of Jeff's knives and I love them because some of the, the previous store-bought knives that I had, uh, every time that I would use them, I'd have to go resharpen them. And Jeff's knives are made so that they're hardened by fire over and over again. And, and you can use them time and time again. We become a more useful tool in the hand of God when we go through times of trials, when we go through suffering in our, our life. And we don't like it. But Peter then tells us that because of that, instead of being surprised by it, instead of being you know, knocked off center by it, we should rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ so that you might also rejoice with great joy when his glory is revealed. Rejoice that you are connected to Christ in suffering. This isn't a new concept that Peter's writing to the church here. All throughout the New Testament, Acts chapter 5, verse 41, Acts 16, 25, Romans 5, 3, Colossians 1, 24, Hebrews 10, 34, all of these passages give us a particular theme that, that encourage us as Christians to rejoice in suffering. Well, why would I rejoice in suffering? Why, why is Peter telling me that I ought to rejoice in suffering? I think Peter has some insight to something here that, that will help us. Suffering, trials, and difficulty always draw us closer to Christ. Adjust that sentence for just a moment. We have an opportunity to draw much closer to Christ through trials and suffering. When everything's going easy, we tend to think, hey, I can handle this. I can do this. And we don't turn to Christ. When we go through tough times, we'll see later, you'll have an option. You can turn to him or from him. 
But trials and testing of our faith gives us an opportunity to draw close to him. And so he says, rejoice that you are connected to Christ in suffering. I want to just go back and, and read uh, for you that, that passage from 1 Peter chapter 1 again, because I want you to see the connection. Peter tells us there, starting in verse 6, he says, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, Peter laid the foundation there in his introduction in chapter one. He's come back to it in chapter four. He goes on to say, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable by fire, or more, through though perishable, which is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you're receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter understands that it is through suffering that God does a work in us to draw us close to Christ, close to a relationship with him, and to purify us and strengthen our faith so that we're more usable for his kingdom. None of us like suffering. <laughs> I, I, I would not pray for God to send painful circumstances upon me or my wife or my family. But let me say something that, that I really believe with all of my heart. I would not pray that God take me back and not give me Katie and what we went through. It was through her that I've learned so much about God and about his presence and about his grace and about his love. It, it's because of the journey that the Lord has taken us on that I can understand a text like this and that I can be a pastor to somebody like the man I was talking about in his trailer at the deer lease on Sunday because I'd been there. Peter tells us to rejoice. I remember a friend of mine, and, and some of you have heard this story before, but a, a friend of mine whose daughter had died waiting on a liver transplant while we were in college, and I called him back in those days. He was in Louisville, Kentucky, going to Southern Seminary, and I remember calling him, and one of the things that, that he said over the phone is he said, you've been chosen to be taken through God's school of suffering. Rejoice in that. You'll learn more in the next six months in his school than you will in all your years of college and seminary. There's a lot of truth to what he said. When God takes you through times of trials and suffering and temptation, draw close to him and rejoice in him. He'll carry you through it. Then Peter turns to a specific type of suffering. In uh, the next passage where he says that 
Uh, don't be surprised at when as a Christian, you are ridiculed for your faith. If, if you are ridiculed for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. He goes on to say, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. I was literally listening to a, a, a program on the way here today from a, a guy that runs this ministry in Israel that I told you a story about a while ago. And one of the things that he encouraged all of the listeners to do was pray for the Christians who are in Gaza because they're trapped. First of all, they're hated by Hamas, who rules Gaza, but they're distrusted by Jews. And because of that, they find themselves in a, in a specific precarious position. And uh, ultimately, just the very fact that they carry the name of Christ makes them at, at certainly an enemy to Hamas and not a friend to the Jewish nation, to the, the unbelieving rulers of, of the present day Israeli nation. And so as Christians, just simply carrying the name of Christ puts them in a, a difficult position. And, and we don't see the kind of suffering here that Christians do in many countries around the world. They're, they're Christians. I, I, when I was in, in Southwestern, I had a good friend in my PhD program who was a Chinese Christian who uh, came out of the underground church and his goal was to go back to the underground church in China where they had to move from basement to basement. Uh, they had to be cautious and careful. Some of his friends and some of his church family had disappeared uh, when they were uh, caught by the communist regime there. We don't have that kind of suffering in our world, but we are in a time where Christians are very easily ridiculed. Uh, all you have to do is, is post something very forthcoming about your faith on Twitter. You get out there on Twitter with, with a clear uh, communication of the gospel that Jesus is the, uh, just, just use Jesus' own words. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Put that out on Twitter and see what kind of, of a response you get. Oftentimes, Christians today will be ridiculed for that kind of faith, will be made fun of. And so the word that, that Peter uses here is ultimately uh, that we will be ridiculed, that we'll face reproach, we'll face slander, we may, may be reviled for our faith. Well, that's nothing new. It's happened forever. Uh, a, a lot of Christians, what I'm saying, have it a whole lot worse than us. I mean, Peter literally was crucified upside down for his faith. Many Christians throughout history have been burned alive for their faith. We don't face that right now in our present culture here in the United States of America, but there are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ around the world today that do face that kind of threat to their lives. But we do face ridicule and scorn oftentimes by a lost world that does not get it. And don't be surprised by that. In fact, rejoice in that, Peter goes on to say. Why? Because you are, the, the spirit of the living God is upon you. You are blessed. I've had some discussions recently with folks that, that uh, there, are, there are people that you can walk into a room with and they don't like you because your spirit doesn't align with their spirit. I truly believe that because the Holy Spirit 
lives in and is with the believer as promised by Jesus in John chapter 16 that if you are walking in a relationship with the Spirit of God, where the Spirit of God shines through you, you can walk into a room with somebody that is anti-Christian and immediately face ridicule or scorn. Some of you have faced that at work. Some of you have told me about how you deal with that, and you don't even have to say anything. You don't have to try to preach. People will get on you, well, you're just preaching. I hadn't said a word. I just walked in the room. Uh, but because the Spirit of God dwells with the believer and the Spirit of God is upon you, there are times that people just simply are, are going to be repelled by that. And they're going to revile you. They're not going to like you. They're going to slander you. And Peter says, rejoice in that because the Spirit of God is on you. That's a blessing of God that you carry the Lord with you wherever you go. So there, what he's referring to here is kind of an unusual measure of the Spirit of God. There's another side to that. One of the things when you face suffering and you go through difficulty, I believe that God gives you an extra measure of grace to deal with your circumstances. And the Lord won't necessarily give you the strength and the grace to deal with what I'm going through. And he won't necessarily give me the strength and the grace to deal with what you're going through. But what I found as we walk through the depths of some of the most difficult times of suffering, whether it was a loss of, of a teenage boy in, in, in May, and I, I watched his family deal with that, or as he, we walked through the loss of our own daughter as a teenager, what I noticed was that people around me were, were just flabbergasted that, that we could smile and sing and worship and laugh and, and that we could continue to, to confess our trust and our reliance upon a holy God who loved us when we were going through what we were going through. And one of the things that I would, people would say things like this, I just couldn't do what you're doing. And I'd go, you have no idea. We can't either. God, when you're walking in a personal relationship with him, he will pour out his spirit upon you and give you the strength and the courage and the ability to face what you never thought you could face before. And somebody that's sitting over here watching that may not understand it because they haven't gone through what you're going through. You see what I mean? The Lord, in his, in his love for you and in his relationship with you, he will pour out his spirit upon you and give you the strength and grace to deal with your circumstances by faith. Now, I put a little, there's a qualifier there because our God desires that we walk with him by faith. And so I don't necessarily believe that he just makes, obviously he didn't make everything easy, but he's with us and he will empower us with that, that measure of his spirit. He will bless us with his spirit. He will rest on us in his spirit, as we go through those trials and, and challenges and painful circumstances of life. So don't be ashamed. He goes on to say in the next verse, don't be ashamed of Christ. If you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Now, don't go out and bring it on yourself. If you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or you, you suffer because of evil doing, 
If, if, if you go out and you bring it on yourself, the promise of God's uh, special presence is not necessarily there, okay? Oh, I go out and do whatever I want. God's going to be with me. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that when you suffer, he will be with you. Now, I believe that if you sin, whatever that sin happens to be, you go out and, and, and you're suffering, you're in jail, you're in prison because you stole something and you repent, you'll find God's presence. You'll find God will be with you, but you're still going to spend the rest of the time that you're supposed to in jail. <laughs> you're still going to suffer uh, and, and pay the penalty for that, that sin. So ultimately, the promise here is not God's presence to be with you when in whatever you do but God's presence when you suffer as a Christian if anyone suffers as a Christian he says there in verse 16 don't be ashamed but let him glorify God in having that name there are times when you as a Christian you will suffer because you're a Christian there are times that you'll just simply suffer as you're a Christian Peter's call for us is never to be ashamed of being a Christian. Put your faith and trust in a God who will walk with you through that time of suffering and difficulty. Then Peter changes, he moves a little bit of a different direction because then he begins to speak about judgment that is to come. Verse 17, he says, for the time has come for judgment to begin on God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God? Then he quotes from Proverbs verse, uh, chapter 11 uh, and essentially says the same thing, uh, bolstering his point. And if a righteous person is saved with difficulty, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? This is a passage that's created a lot of confusion and, and a little bit of discomfort for believers as we read that. What's this judgment he's talking about? Let me, let me define two words here that help lay the foundation for a better understanding. First of all, the word that he uses for judgment here is krima. It's a different word than, than uh, is used to understand or, or throughout the, the New Testament that is translated condemnation. So the idea is not that the condemnation uh, for unrepentance or for the, the uh, unrepentant sin or the refusal to turn to Christ. If, if anyone suffers as a Christian, what he's talking about here, sorry, the time has come for the judgment to begin, this, this uh, judgment upon our sins, this, this fiery ordeal, this purification, I believe Peter has in mind. I think if you keep that in context, it'll help you understand that. We Christians will go through things that burn out the garbage in our lives, okay? Peter's just said that. He said it back in chapter one, and he's reinforced it here in chapter four, that we will go through fiery ordeals for the testing of our faith. There's been times in my life where God dealt with sin in my life, and it was like he was weeding out that sin, where God would, would challenge me. I'd be sitting in a, a service, a worship service, and God would grab a hold of my heart and deal specifically with that sin and, and, and weed that out or purify my faith by burning away that sin in my life. Many of you have had that kind of experience. If God is going to bring judgment upon his people, if he's going to bring purification for his people for their sin, how much more so, Peter says, is he going to deal with those who don't believe him, those who don't trust him? Now, 
the word that he uses here for house of God is intriguing. And uh, it sounds here like he's specifically the, 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 God's household. He's there in verse 17. To begin with God's household, if it begins with us, will be the outcome for those who disobey the gospel of God. The, the word that Peter uses there for God's household, he uses one other place in First Peter. It's the word oikos, means house generally, uh, or home. Peter's frame of reference here seems to be connected back to Ezekiel 9 or even Malachi chapter 3, where God speaks of how he's going to deal with Israel and bring a purification in among his people first. Okay. Malachi chapter 3 is a prophetic passage that points to the coming of John the Baptist, at least in part. And so you have this idea that God is going to deal with us, with those in his household, for the purification of our faith. And sometimes that's a fiery ordeal. It's a judgment that comes upon us to deal with our sin. If God is dealing with his household like that, Peter's question is, how much more judgment is going to come upon those who have not believed, those who aren't his? If God dealt with the people of Israel whom he loves... Israel's all over the news right now. There's all kinds of arguments out there among Baptist scholars, among scholars in general, Christian scholars, about the nature of Israel. Uh, does God still love Israel? Is the Israel of today, after 1948, uh, is that a fulfillment of the promise of God's covenant with Abraham from Genesis chapter 12, or does it have nothing to do with it? I have some, I'll just simply say, liberal friends, uh, liberal scholars who would say that, they're, that, that the, the Israel of today is not connected in any way back to the Israel of, uh, of the Bible. And I disagree with that. I think that the promise that God made to Israel, that uh, first of all, there was going to be a savior that came through him, that has been fulfilled. Now, Israel as a whole did not accept that, but I believe Romans chapter 10 or chapter 11, when it refers to uh, uh, Israel that is going to be saved by God, is, has to do with the present day nation and people group, uh, the Hebrews that are connected to Israel today. So yes, what's going on in the Middle East does have an impact as we look forward to the return of Christ and to the end times. With that said, the only individual Jewish people who are going to be saved, just like the only individual Gentile people who are going to be saved, are those who come through Christ. So when Romans 11 talks about the, 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 the Jewish nation returning to God, I believe there's going to be a, a large movement of Israelites who come to Christ in the end times, but that does not mean that every individual Jewish person is going to be saved. God loved Israel. He loved the children of Abraham. He chose them and he worked through them and he sent Jesus through them and he still loves the people of Israel. But only those Jews Unless Jesus is a liar when he was speaking to the Jews in John 14, only those Jews who come through Jesus will be saved. All right? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. God works through nations. God works through kings. God works through kingdoms. But God was in the, in the business of touching lives even before Abraham, 
Otherwise, you've got to deal with where did Melchizedek come from, right? And the, the description of Melchizedek in Hebrews, he was a priest of God and Jesus came in the fashion of a Melchizedek. So ultimately, God's salvation comes to individuals and salvation will only ultimately come through the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So here, when Peter is speaking of the judgment that's coming upon the household of God, first of all, remember, Peter is writing to primarily Jews who have become Christians. And so they're already coming from that Jewish perspective, and I'm sure they have in their mind, and Peter certainly, I believe, has in his mind some of those texts, like I pointed out from Ezekiel and and from Malachi, where God says that he's going to bring judgment upon his household. And he's already in a large way, begun to bring judgment upon the household of Israel at Peter's time. Peter says, if God's bringing judgment upon his household, whom he's loved and protected for all these centuries, we're now his household, the house of God. God's going to deal with our sin, and he's going to bring judgment upon us. It's not a condemnation, a separation, a loss of salvation, but it is God will deal with the sin, our sin, and he'll bring purification to purify his church. I believe right now the church is going through a time of purification and it needs more. I think that there are a lot of, of wolves in pulpits out there that are preaching false gospels, that God's gonna cleanse, that he's gonna purify. What I need to be most concerned about is the sin in my own heart, my own life, that God deals with. And then as as Peter reminds us of that, he comes to his final point here. So then, okay, what, so what? So then, okay, let's review for a second. Don't be surprised when you go through trials and suffering, whether it's for the purification of your faith, solely for the purification of your faith, whether it's because of uh, you're being ridiculed or you're, you're facing persecution because you carry the name of Christ or you're facing judgment. God is purifying your own soul. He's cleansing you. You're under some judgment because of your sin that God's dealing with you. Don't be surprised when you go through fiery trials. So what do you do about it? It's pretty straightforward. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. So what do I do when I face suffering that surprises me, comes out of the blue, it's not fair? What do I do? I entrust myself to a faithful God who loves me. See, I mentioned this earlier. I gave you a a little flash forward. You have two options when you go through suffering. You can get angry at God, throw stones at him, run away from him, or you can run to him. I'll be honest, the majority of our struggles with, as we watch Katie die, we ran to the arms of God. There's a couple times I got mad. 
There's a couple times when I yelled out in my truck, God, this is not fair. I don't like this. I, I don't care that, that I'm, it's not that I'm hurting, but what's happening to her is not fair. Okay, Lord, lots of people may come to faith in you for eternity through Katie's story, but why does she have to die? Why does she have to lose her hearing? Why does she have to suffer? That doesn't seem fair to me. I remember the year that right before she passed away, Max Licato's book came out called It's Not About Me. There's two chapters in there that really touched Katie and I. One of them is your body is not about you. The other one was your suffering is not about you. It's all about Jesus. And so if we learn that Jesus is Lord. He is the ultimate one. He is the only one who deserves glory and honor anyway. Every single one of us deserves suffering. He's the one who doesn't, and he's the one who suffered the most. If we'll, if we'll get a glimpse of that and understand the love of God, then we can run to God instead of away from him. Now, I want to qualify something there because I said there's two different tracks you can take. You can, you can run from God, and I've seen people that went through suffering, or even the question of evil in our world has prevented a lot of people from coming to Christ. You hear the question all the time, if there is a good, benevolent God, then why does he allow evil to happen? That's a difficult question. It's a challenging question, okay? And there's a lot of folks who have refused to, to entertain the idea of a loving God. There's been a lot of people who have refused to come to Christ because of that philosophical question. So you can run from God because of suffering and evil, or you can run to God as the one who will be there for you and who will carry you through times of suffering and challenges and difficulty. For the Christian who runs to God, that does not preclude the fact that I might get angry with him sometimes. But you know what I learned when I went through suffering, intense suffering in those times? He's got pretty broad shoulders. He already knew when I was hurting. He already knew that I was angry with him. So I might as well tell him, get it out. And then be reminded, like Job, okay, mad at you, God. You've heard me, but you are the one who created the hippopotamus. You're the one who put the stars in the sky. You're the king. You're the Lord. You're worthy of my trust. And not only that, and, and this is what I'll tell you that, that, that is probably the most important. Okay, he's a big enough God. He can handle our suffering. He can handle our problems. He's big enough. But what if he's not loving? Peter says here, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator. He is faithful and he loves you. You know how I know he loves me? Because he sent his son to stretch out his arms cross and die for me. Because he wanted me so bad. He wanted Katie so bad. He wants you so bad to spend eternity with him. He sent his son to die on a cross. Not when you were good, but when you were evil, 
Paul reminds us of that in Romans 5. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is how, he says, God put on display his love for us. God demonstrated his own love for us in this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Understanding that, that he's that big and he's that loving, why would I run anywhere else when I suffer but to him? That's Peter's reminder. You're going to suffer. You're going to sometimes, because you're a Christian, sometimes just because you live in this world, you're going to go through times of trial. Some of you are going through times of trial right now. Run to God. There's no Catholic priest that was, became evangelical named Brennan Manning. He, he used the term, uh, crawl up in the lap of God and just sit there. Just go into your prayer closet. Go into a quiet room and cry out, God, I need you. This week I saw Beth Moore had written, a, she wrote a tweet. She was going back through one of her old journals. And in her journals, you can imagine, she's pretty verbose. She would have long, you know, paragraphs after she'd read God's word. There was one day she's flipping through her journal and she saw two words on that page. Help me. It was all she wrote that day. So the day she found out that her brother died. And all she could say to God was, help me. And she wrote about how God's, she knew God's presence in those moments. Sometimes all you can say is, help me. And he'll be there for you. If you don't know this God, if you haven't put your faith and trust in this Jesus who died on the cross for you, I would plead with you to find him, pursue him. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Wataga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Wataga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwataga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.